What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. And today, my guest is Mary O'Hara. She's a social affairs journalist and author who's written on mental health issues for more than a decade. She's a writer for The Guardian newspaper, and her new book is called Austerity Bites. It's out in paperback in the U.S. from the Chicago University Press, Chicago University Press, and you can get more information about the book at austeritybitesuk.com. So welcome to Madness Radio, Mary O'Hara. Hi, well, hi. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you've been covering um, disability issues and mental health issues from an economic uh, perspective for The Guardian for quite a long time. And your new book is about the um, impact of, of economic crisis and cuts and austerity in the U.K., and you've you've made a lot of very very powerful connections between uh, how economic policies around austerity really impact people's mental health, and I think this work is really important. I, I really encourage people to check out your your page on of your writings on the Guardian, and also check out the book. So tell us a little bit about first of all, just what is austerity, and why should people interested in mental health understand some of these economic issues? Well, um, I, I write on social policy, and so I, would, I wouldn't normally be delving into economics so much. But when austerity was introduced in Britain and in a lot of other countries following the financial crisis, it resonated enormously um, with people uh, who had experienced mental health difficulties and pushed some other people into mental health difficulties. Now, austerity was something that really wasn't in common parlance for a long time. But once these policies were introduced, it suddenly became a common word. And a lot of people understandably ask, well, what is it? I mean, what the hell does it mean? Now, to me, perhaps the best way to explain it is the dictionary definition, because the dictionary definition takes away from any of the political or ideological issues around it. So I'm just going to read that for you. So what is austerity? Austerity is difficult economic conditions created by government measures to reduce a budget deficit, especially by reducing public expenditure. So that more or less sums it up. When it's introduced, it usually involves cuts to all kinds of public services, including health, including social care. And it also erodes social welfare protections, which affect many, many people. Many of those people either have mental health difficulties already or end up with one as a result of things like losing access to support, cuts to psychiatric services, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about the the global economic downturn, I guess, which was in 2008. And then basically public spending cuts are introduced in a number of countries as a way of saying, well, we have to get spending down and respond to the crisis. And that's that's the austerity practices. That's right. One of the things that happened in response to the crisis was obviously the banks had to be bailed out. Now, the banks were bailed out with public money. When that happens, uh, public spending ostensibly goes up. Deficits go up. So therefore, governments react and say, well, we need to reduce the deficits urgently. We need to cut public spending as a route to do that. And that's what a lot of countries did. Not all, but some, including Britain, Oh, Mary, are you there? Yeah, can you hear uh, me? Yes, okay, we just had a little dropout for a second. So some countries introduced austerity, and I think the U.S. did as well. We had a big uh, bailout of the banks, and we've been getting messages from politicians and leaders saying that we can't afford public spending programs. And so this is a parallel that happens. It's not just the U.K., it's a number of countries. It's part of a broader neoliberal economic policy and social policy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the, ini the initial response to the financial crisis in 2009 by countries, including the UK and the US, was an economic stimulus. So money was pumped into 
the economies to keep to keep basically to keep them ticking over because mm -hmm. there was there were genuine threats. It was the biggest crisis since the Great Depression. It was an enormous, uh, enormously difficult situation for governments all across the world. After a year of stimulus, some countries opted to have drastic spending cuts. Now, the U.S. did to some degree, and some states in the U.S. did more than others. But uh, on the whole. There was stimulus in the U.S. where there wasn't in countries like the United Kingdom, Spain, Greece, Italy, Ireland. Oh, so so maybe the austerity wasn't quite as strong a policy in the U.S. as in the European countries, partly because of the the stimulus package that I guess Obama brought that's in right. after the election. Okay, that that's right. And one of the one of the outcomes of that was that the U.S. economy um, did slightly better than other economies. So for instance, Britain, which introduced austerity very quickly and very brutally, almost hit a trip, what's known as a triple dip recession. Um, and that was had enormous consequences for the country because growth just didn't come back um, as soon as it would have done otherwise. That, I mean, that's not a consensus among economists, but many, many economists, including people like Joseph Stiglitz, would say that. So in some ways, the experience of the UK and Ireland and in European countries is a cautionary tale for if you don't go with the stimulus approach and you do take an austerity approach that there can be very, very bad consequences, which we've seen some of in the United States, but the the real brunt of it has taken place in Europe. That's right, and in, in only in some parts of Europe as well. But one of the um, major outcomes of austerity policies is for public health, and that obviously includes mental health. So there's been a lot of research done right from the start in terms of what these human uh, consequences are, one of which is increased rates of suicide in countries that introduce the most severe austerity measures. Uh, that has been well documented. There's a wonderful book uh, called The Body Economic, Why Austerity Kills by two academics, one at Oxford University in Britain and one at Stanford here in the U U.S., which looks at the patterns in the different countries and the impact on public health and suicidal behavior. And so we've seen this um, in the UK, and we've also seen in Spain, and especially in, in Greece, where they've adopted yeah. a very strong austerity measures, a, a big awareness of the direct impact on suicides, mm -hmm. that basically people are just hit with an incredible amount of fear and despair about their their well-being economically, and then they just resort resort to suicide. And you, so you directly see the suicide rates go up as a result of these economic policies. Well, it is it is a really interesting point because, I mean, first of all, there's a lot more research to be done on this. There's a lot more knowledge we could do with having because, let's face it, we want to know more about prevention in the future as well mm -hmm. as dealing with the immediate consequences. So more research is definitely warranted. But Greece is a really interesting um, case in point because its circumstances were very different economically from the rest of the European countries anyway. But its austerity was extraordinarily severe. 40% of the Greek health budget was slashed. 40%? Four 40%. 40%. 40%. Now, can, can you imagine, right across health, including mental health, you're going to have very severe consequences when those kinds of cuts come in. Also, what's interesting about Greece is historically it has always had one of the lowest suicide rates across Europe. I mean, that's like a long-term picture. And yet, at, at one point, suicide, suicide spiked by 60% after austerity measures were introduced. Now, it's very difficult to dismiss those as um, pure coincidence. There are people who will say that there aren't links, that you've got to be wary of causal links. And that, that, that's important for suicide generally. But when you look at Greece and you look at the impact, um, it's very clear that something very serious was happening. Because when we when we hear about suicide prevention, it's very quickly a discussion about, well, we need to screen people who have depression because we know that mm. there's this disease called depression. And when people mm. have this disease, it's going to cause them to be suicidal. And so therefore, the whole way of understanding it is really put into a brain neuroscience um, framework. And what you're suggesting is that actually there are glaring examples of clearly social, economic, political forces are shaping mm. people's mental health experiences, even to the direct relationship between austerity policies and people ending their own lives. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when people have a history 
of depression there are you know there are issues there when it comes to suicidal behaviors and suicidal thoughts that's mm-hmm. that's without doubt but it's extremely reductive to see it only in those terms i mean there's a long academic literature that looks at the impact on mental health from recessions generally from job loss uh from marital breakups as a result of financial problems i mean there's a lot there's a long literature that shows that economic circumstances can have a detrimental effect on people's mental health. Now, some people may be more resilient than others. Um, some people just might have a strong family unit around them while others don't. There mm-hmm. are complex factors at play, but there's enough evidence out there to show time and time again how economic circumstances can impact negatively on people to tell us that when there are shocks to economic systems, you know, big shocks, that a lot of people are likely to be affected by it. Yeah, and this reminds me of a Madness Radio interview that we did with Alicia Ali, who's a researcher at New York University, who mm-hmm. took it the other direction. She basically took people who were depressed and then provided them yeah. with anti-poverty um, economic loans for small businesses, basically supported them with these micro loans, and then yeah. by improving their economic conditions, she was able to show that they had reduced rates of, of depression. So when we mm-hmm. think about suicide prevention, I think we really need to look at books like your book and the research that's going on that make these more complicated connections with the health of the society as a whole, which is very much connected to the economic health and issues like austerity. Well, I think that's a really important point. And for instance, one of the issues that has come up in Britain under austerity isn't just the impact on an individual's mental health, but the impact on um, the wider mental well-being within communities. So, for instance, poorer communities, deprived communities, which are already more likely to have higher rates of suicide attempts and suicide, um, were the most affected by austerity policies because the cuts tended to affect poorer people, not when you've got concentrations of poorer people, all of whom were probably struggling before and then mm-hmm. are hit with these extra difficulties, well, you know, that, affect, that affects the whole community. Now, we mm-hmm. do know, for instance, that people, um, people's mental well-being is often impacted on the strength of their communities, the strength of their families, whether they've got strong social connections. You break those social connections. You put extra pressure on those families, and that affects a lot of individuals. But they're ultimately part of a group that would otherwise be able to support them better if these difficulties weren't landed on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we really need a community development perspective rather than just a narrow brain science perspective. And when you're talking about the impact of these cuts, when you're talking about what austerity is and how it affects people, especially poor people and the disabled and vulnerable people, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned the 40% decrease in public health spending in Greece. What are some other examples of how austerity actually lands in a country? What does it actually look like when we when we say austerity and public spending cuts? So if you look at the UK, which is the, the country I know most about and have done my research on, the, the public expenditure cuts that were made were predominantly made to things like welfare, or social security, as I'd prefer to call it, um, mm-hmm. and to local government budgets. Now, local government budgets tend to support vulnerable people in the community. They tend to support people with severe disabilities, for instance, or people who have mental health difficulties, or parents of children with disabilities, or older people who might be isolated and need support and need people to come and visit them. When it comes to the benefit system, that tends to be helping, obviously, poorer people, people who've fallen on hard times or lost their job. So... The vast majority of people who are affected by austerity are already people who just need that extra bit of help. You know, they're citizens who need an extra bit of help. So it's very important to get that across because it doesn't blanket a society. So the well-off were more or less shielded from austerity. And with, when that happens, you end up with a sort of separate perspective. So people who aren't affected don't understand why everyone's complaining about being affected by it, because it really divides society. And that has a massive impact as well. So we're talking about things like public transit. We're talking about things like child care and um, preschool. Yeah, we're talking all about- of those, yeah. So, for instance, there's a program in Britain called Sure Start, 
which was actually modeled on something that was set up in, in the US back in the 90s as a way of creating um, environments where parents from poorer backgrounds could bring their kids along, get a bit of extra childcare, a bit of extra support, which meant that they could go out to work and maybe work more hours if they were already working. And they were proven to be a great success. But they were one of the things that were targeted when the cuts first started coming in. So mm. there are fewer Sure Start centres now in these deprived communities than there were before. Now, part of the argument for early intervention, especially with children, is that it's good for their general well-being, it's good for their education, it's good for their long-term mental health prospects. So it's a false economy to cut something like that, but yet that's what ends up being cut. Also, things like, just things like support for families with disabled children. So respite mm. services are cut and these these create enormous stresses on families and on communities and the the cuts have been so severe and bear in mind there's more to come this is a cumulative situation and if you're looking at it epidemiologically in terms of long-term outcomes we've only begun to see the consequences of this yeah because you're talking about the the impacts of austerity on the basic fabric of a society that's going to prevent problems from coming later down the line. So this is having exactly. huge ripples. And plus, as we're going to talk about more, this is an entrenched ideology of neoliberalism that is just continuously coming at us from political leaders mm -hmm. and economic policy makers who are just saying, we need more of this, we need more of this, we need more of this. So let's let's talk a little bit more. You mentioned um, the suicide rates going up. And what are some Examples, I know people have made calls to the helplines and there have been specific stories around people's yeah. suicide experiences. And, and your book just creates such a vivid um, sense of the direct impact of just the, sh the shock waves of fear that go mm. through the society when austerity policies are put into effect. Well, when I was researching my book, I traveled all over the United Kingdom interviewing people at a grassroots level. Who were, who were either already directly affected or were going to be directly affected by this thing. And one one of the, uh, I suppose, the most significant things that I walked away with from that was how frightened people were, how, how terrified they were. Now, within a very short period of time after austerity policies were introduced, including reforms and cuts to welfare, the number of calls to suicide hotlines and to mental health charities support lines shot up. And when the callers were asked for the reasons why they were calling, a much larger proportion than before were to do with financial stresses and, ben and changes to the benefit system. Now, that has huge significance because the government, of course, will say that this isn't the case, that people aren't, um, you know, feeling a, a, an incredible mental strain as a result. But those calls really show that that's the case. Also, uh, like, as we talked about, Prescriptions for um, antidepressants increased as well. GPs, doctors, family doctors started reporting more people coming into their surgeries, not just to talk about their physical illnesses or, or even their mental difficulties, but just because they felt like they needed to talk to someone about the stress that they were under financially. I mean, they, we, we've had situations in Britain where psychologists and other mental health professionals have taken to setting up their own anti-austerity groups because they say that in practice, Every day, they're seeing people coming through the doors with these issues. This, you know, this isn't a, a general kind of, you know, I suppose perspective on the world. This is actually concrete. This is what professionals are seeing. This is what people who are desperate are telling the lines that they call is causing their problems. So the mental health professionals and the psychologists themselves are starting to say we need austerity groups and start to raise this issue because that's what they see is is coming through the door of the clinics. Oh. Absolutely. And there's a there's a new group that formed this year in Britain called Psychologists Against Austerity. And they've written, I would recommend that your listeners um, look it up online. And if you just Google Psychologists Against Austerity, it will come up. But they mm -hmm. put together a briefing paper this year that looked back over the five years of austerity in Britain and in other countries. And they have collated uh, the evidence for how destructive it can be. They've looked at the various aspects of mental difficulty. You know, what, what really drives mental hardship? And they have been able to connect those to all kinds of policies that are directly impacting people. So, for instance, if there are 
fewer jobs around or jobs are more insecure. Well, guess what? Insecurity has a massive impact on people's mental well-being and it's well documented. If you create a society where people have less security, if they have less security in their jobs, then there's underlying stress and anxiety that comes from that. And so are people turning to antidepressants partly because the funding for psychological treatments and different kinds of alternatives to pharmaceutical solutions just isn't there and sort of that's the thing that's offered is more pills? Yeah, I mean, it's the quickest solution. I mean, there, there are obviously differences between countries, differences between regions, etc. But it is often the quickest solution to someone's immediate problem. Now, in Britain, the government will say that they have increased investment in talking therapies, which they have. And that's a good thing. But the waiting times are still months and months and months for lots of people to get access. If you're in crisis, a waiting time for a talking therapy of eight months is no use to you. No, it's no. not. On the other hand, it's right, it's not good. And on the other hand, you have charities, community-based charities, as well as national mental health charities, who themselves have felt the strain because A, they're struggling for finances, and B, the inquiries that they're getting have increased. So their resources are stretched. So you've got uh, you've got a, a reduction in what's available in terms of statutory provision of health care and mental mm-hmm. health care and at the same time because of the wider cuts you've got extra stress on those community organizations that often step in to fill the gap when statutory services don't and that just leaves people in the middle with nowhere to turn so antidepressants are often something that people will turn to in those circumstances because in britain with the national health service you can get prescriptions and if you're poor you get those prescriptions for free mm-hmm And of course, when austerity comes in and the belt is tightened, that doesn't mean that the belt is tightened on the pharmaceutical companies and so that they can't charge as much for their pills. They charge just the same amount, um, but their markets grow because more people are turning to them. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain is very different from the U.S. market Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and that everything is purchased sort of centrally, etc. So it has a it has a different market dynamic in terms of pharma. But it is often out of desperation, the one thing that people can get access to. Now, the other thing that happened in Britain, and this is despite bear in mind that in Britain, say, as opposed to Greece, whose health services were slashed in Britain, when austerity was introduced, the government promised to protect healthcare. So it said, we're going to ring fence it. We're not going to cut it. Hmm. Now, of course, in reality, there were cuts in various different places because how you define healthcare for a start um, is never exactly straightforward. But a freedom of information request by a magazine called Community Care and by the BBC looked into what exactly had happened to mental health services in the five years of austerity. Now, what they found was that there, was two, there were 2,000 fewer acute psychiatric beds for people in crisis over that 2,000 fewer beds. I mean, that's a large number of beds. There was a real, uh, real-time cut in the amount of funding that went into acute services. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what does that mean? People in crisis have less available to them. What mm-hmm. do they do? They go to A&E. A&E isn't equipped to deal with people coming in with what's, very serious uh, what's A&E? Um, mental that's health a- stress. Um, accident and emergency departments. Ah, yes, yeah. Yeah. So they saw an upswing. Which ends up being more expensive, too. Exactly. Now, the other thing, of course, that happens is that people in crisis end up in police stations because they end up getting arrested and they're in police cells. That's mm-hmm. expensive, too. Yeah this, is a, thing that I, yeah, this is a dynamic we see in the United States that on the, on the front end, there's, there's cuts to community programs, and supposedly that's for saving money, but actually it ends up costing more money because people end up in more, more expensive situations in hospitals, emergency rooms, and in prison. Absolutely. And this is one of the the biggest problems with something like austerity. So the government says, you know, we were clearing some things off the books financially right now. It is extraordinary short termism. Yeah. Because even even while they're sort of well, technically saving in one area, those costs go somewhere else. So social care, an import a really important part of any society's provision for its vulnerable people. Massive cuts in Britain. Now, if you cut social care, where do those people go? They go to the health service as well when they're desperate because they don't have the people coming to visit and that would look out for their health needs, etc., and help prevent things happening. 
It's an extraordinary false economy. Yeah, and of course, those of us who are saying, look, you know, we need alternatives to hospitals. We need different kinds of services. Yeah. That we need the quality of care. It's the same issue because the funds aren't there. Yeah. The funds aren't there. And so yeah. we can't make the case for, look, fund this hospital alternative, fund this peer support mm. group, fund this holistic uh, coverage for insurance, fund the different kinds of alternatives for the direction we want to see the mental health system go, there, if there's no yeah. funding at all, then that's off the table completely. And then it ends up yeah. becoming, because so much of the, the alternative approaches are about prevention. And so it ends up just all everything, the last thing that gets cut is the emergency rooms and the long-term and yeah. the, the, the kinds of the crisis services. Yeah, and that is expensive. You know, there's just... I mean, we know this, and we knew this before the financial crisis. We knew this before austerity policies were introduced. The evidence has been building up for a very, very long time for alternative approaches, for ways to keep people well for longer. Um, and yet, somehow, policymakers managed to ignore that yeah. in the name of saving money in the short term. But well, of course, one of the biggest mm -hmm. ironies of all of this, especially in Britain, is that they're not really saving any money overall because they introduced austerity on one level, but stimulus on another. So, for instance, the housing market in Britain was stimulated with a policy called right to buy, which pumped money into the housing market and inflated uh -huh. house prices. Um, and that, in turn, increased the government's debt. So it's they're not even meeting their own objectives for, you know, debt reduction. So but what in would the meantime, you, what would you lots say of vulnerable to, people suffer. What would you say to a, a devil's argument that might be made, which would say something like, well, okay, if, if mental health services are really bad quality and a lot of people are getting hurt by forced treatment, for example, or over-medication, mm -hmm. for example, then it isn't good to have less money available for the mainstream mental health system? That might be a devil's advocate argument. So it's better to have less money for for mental health services? Well, if people are just trying to get away from mental health services, I mean, that might be, but a lot of people need alternatives, so that wouldn't really be better at all. Well, it depends how you look at mental health services, doesn't it? If you see them in a purely um, medicalized, hospital-based um, way, then that's something that, that people would say. But I think... You know, if you're if you're enlightened about what mental health services in the broadest possible context should and could be, mm -hmm. then the money argument is it, it, it takes on a different different dimension, if you like, because really what you want is a I suppose a selection of different um, alternatives that w might work for different people in different ways. So, for mm -hmm. instance, the National Health Service does have lots of different options for people. It's just that they're under pressure at the moment. Um, one of the things that comes up time and again is mindfulness and how much some people say that they really benefit from doing that or they benefit from physical exercise. They're all kind of like green gyms, you know, all, all mm. these kinds of things. And when you give uh, doctors or other practitioners the options of um, putting these to people, you know, pe people can experiment with different things. And often people will have really good outcomes. But mm -hmm. it's a matter of changing, changing, I suppose, the dialogue around mental health and mental illness and what it means to get well and be well. Which you can't do at all if there's no resources and no budgets and no funding available for it. Yeah, and that's only for, the, um, and that's only for those people who actually feel like they need services, you know, mm -hmm. or who make who take the step to ask for help. You know, there are a lot of people, certainly, I interviewed a lot of people, Will, I mean, a lot, people who'd never been in touch with mental health services of any kind because they never felt that they needed it, mm -hmm. talking about how they were living with this underlying anxiety and stress every single day. And mm -hmm. that's, an, that, you know, that doesn't get calculated. That's not factored in, but it's a very real phenomenon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that you write about that's been so terrifying has been that people who are uh, disabled, either a physical disability or they have a psychiatric diagnosis and they're uh, not able to work, that there are mm -hmm. these audits that come in, the fitness to work audits, and it's, yeah. it's just horrifying. Tell us about that and how austerity has impacted that. Well, this has got to be one of the most extraordinary uh I don't know, consequences of austerity, really. Um, 
there are those who would say, but this has nothing to do with austerity. This is just about welfare reform. This is about getting people back to work, giving them opportunities to work, etc., etc. Back to work policies were already in place before the current government in Britain and before the financial crisis. Um, and the idea behind them, of course, is to say, OK, if someone hasn't worked for a while or feels like they can't get into work because of a disability of any kind, then how do we help those people get into work? Now, that's a laudable goal. You know, disabled people are much more likely to be unemployed and much more likely to be low paid than other mm -hmm. groups in society. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you want to make sure that they're encouraged? That's really, really important. What's happened, though, in the way that it's, I mean, I'll cut a very long story short because it's a very long story, but what's happened in Britain is rather than going down that route, they've gone down a very punitive route, which has made disabled people, including people with mental health difficulties, feel targeted, feel like they have been picked out as people who don't want to work or uh, are lazy or just can't be bothered. And they're put through these extraordinary fitness for work tests that have put enormous stress on people because, for instance, prior to these tests, uh, a family doctor would be able to verify whether someone's mental health problems were so severe or, mm -hmm. you know, fluctuating, for instance, that they, ju they just wouldn't be able to work right now. Maybe at some point, sure, but the doctor's word would be taken as something that actually meant something. Under this current system, people are called into these fitness for work tests. They're interviewed. They call it, the people who go through it call it a tick box um, reaction. So it's a complex mental health problem, you know. Just check tick box boxes. Solution. Yeah, it's like, mm. seriously, it doesn't work. And if you're physically disabled, for example, one of the tests will include, you know, mobility. So can you walk a certain number of steps? Can you lift a certain thing? Now, if you've got a, if you've got a fluctuating condition, well, on one day, you know what, you might be able to do that task but by the evening, you may no longer be able to do it, but you will have been declared fit for work. So if you if you are someone with um, serious depression and the day that you go in for your test is actually one of your better days, maybe the only good day you've had in six months, mm -hmm. that's the day they will judge you on. Mm -hmm. Not what your doctor says is your long-term medical history. It's an incredibly stressful process. Some of the stories I've heard have been remarkable. We had uh, a, a story where one guy went in for his test and the person interviewing him said, oh, so I see you say you're suicidal, right? And the guy says, yes, I feel suicidal. And the response was, well, why haven't you done it yet? Uh, wow. Right? So you go in there, you've been feeling suicidal, you've put it down because it's the reason why you can't work. Mm -hmm. And this person reacts as if, well, if you were that serious, you would have done it already. Mm -hmm. Now, that's sometimes the level of understanding of the people conducting these interviews so you can see why it's incredibly upsetting for people mm -hmm. and then when people are evaluated or declared fit to work that yeah. has triggered suicides directly and people's incredible res responses to just collapse because their entire source of livelihood their stability their housing mm -hmm. is now totally in jeopardy and of course that's going to lead some people to the despair that's, right, that's going to be suicide that's right, because under the conditionality, under the conditions that are put in place, if people don't fulfill what these assessments say in terms of taking up employment, etc., then they're penalized for it. So people will lose their benefits. Now, another aspect of that is that if you don't turn up for an appointment, you know, let's say you, you're agoraphobic, you can't leave the house, but they've told you you have to come to this appointment then you will be sanctioned. You will have benefits removed. Now, often for people, this is the difference between eating and not eating, you know, mm. or having heat in their house. It's why food banks in Britain have multiplied beyond all recognition. It, there are millions of people using food banks in Britain. That was never a phenomenon before. That simply didn't happen before, before austerity. Mm. And a lot of those people are gone there, desperate because they've been sanctioned. There have been people who have been found dead in their homes. Um, some people who, you know, starving, basically, and found by relatives. And the government will say this is, you can't prove a direct correlation or a direct causal link between the benefits changes and austerity and welfare reforms and this person's subsequent behavior, even though the people close to them know that that's the case and watch that person deteriorate in front of them, even though at inquests, 
doctors have given evidence saying, I knew and I said that this person couldn't go to work. And they, they still sanctioned them anyway. Yeah, I know from my own experience being on disability in the United States, there was just a feeling of constant fear that yeah. the little bit of money that I had could be taken away from me if the paperwork yeah. wasn't right, if I was, if I got a different doctor or a different situation yeah. or I moved. And so it, it just creates this atmosphere where you're not in a position of feeling supported to take some risks mm -hmm. and to maybe try a short-term job or a part-time job, making any kind of changes in the yeah. security that you've got becomes absolutely mm -hmm. terrifying. So it's exactly the wrong direction to go in to just add to that atmosphere of threat and coercion. It's not going to support people finding right. their unique pathway slowly, step by step, to what they need to be able to get back to work. It's much more that, that, of an aggressive kind of punitive uh, strategy, which is counterproductive, I think. That's right. And I think what's interesting is that the rhetoric that's deployed uh, by government, for example, is suggesting that this is the best way to get people into work. We just need to encourage them. We just need to let them know that they can get into work. You know, that's the rhetoric. But the reality is something very different. It's very cruel and it has actual consequences. You know, it has life and death consequences. You know, let's not mince our words. That is that is what happens. And under austerity, that accelerated. So At the moment in Britain, you've got campaigners and activists demanding that the government completely um, are completely transparent about the number of deaths that happen after people have been declared fit for work. Mm -hmm. Now, only only what days are Friday? Yeah, only this week, uh, mortality statistics were released in Britain that showed how many people who were who were declared fit for work died subsequently. You know, within a short period of time, and there were a lot of these people. Now, the government says you still can't make a link between the policies and what happened for people. And of, and of course, there will be people who, you know, if you've got cancer and your prognosis said three years and you die within six months, well, you know what, that happens. That happens sometimes. That's true. But what is not happening is a full analysis of the circumstances of the people before they died. Mm -hmm. You will only know the true answer to that once that analysis has been done. And it, it could be done. They could easily tally up the statistics but they haven't. Mm -hmm. And the pressure on the British government to do that has really accelerated as the deaths have accelerated. One of the things that I think people question is sort of what it is that's motivating a lot of this. I mean, it seems like there's a real blame, blame the victim kind of scapegoating of the poor that happens. Do you see that as part of austerity practices and the whole way that austerity is, is discussed, and especially in the context of this uh, workfare approach that's so punitive in, in saying that people should be going back to work and the, mm. the assumption is that they're lazy or they're not interested or there's something wrong with them? Yeah, it's fundamental to it. I mean, the austerity in the UK has been propped up by a very effective narrative, which essentially pits one set of citizens against another. If, if policymakers manage to make it look like there are groups of people who are, as they would say, sponging off the state or living off the state. Then those people who don't see themselves as sponging off the state suddenly start pointing fingers. And the people that they point fingers at are those who need services. Now, often that's disabled people. Often it's people with mental health difficulties. It's also children, lone parents, lots of different groups. But what has been very effectively done in the UK is to make it look like, for instance, that benefit fraud um, is higher than it is. So one of the ways of vilifying people is to say, not only do these people rely on benefits or depend on benefits, but they actually fleece the system as well. They're basically calling people thieves half the time if they use services. And that has been incredibly effective. Um, I think possibly um, there's an organization in, in the UK called the New Economics Foundation, and they've done a lot of work looking at the social consequences of austerity and examining why the narrative has been so successful. And one of the things that has really struck me about their work is pointing out that it's very clever politics. It's very clever politics because if you repeat something often enough, if you call people skivers or lazy 
often enough, and if the newspapers and the rest of the media repeat that, it sinks in. People start to believe it. And not only do the wider public begin to believe it, but often when you're interviewing people who are vulnerable and who have been affected, they start to internalize that themselves. So people begin to think, well, maybe I am worthless. You know, maybe I have no value in society. And that leads to all other kinds of problems, too. Well, we see this very much so in the United States. I mean, this is a a, a very strong um, uh, drumbeat that we get from the media a lot is that we want to focus on the welfare cheats, the people who are scamming the system, people who are yeah. somehow cheating or stealing from the system. And what we don't do is we don't turn the question on its head and say, yeah. well, actually, let's look at the people at the top of the economic ladder. Yeah. Let's look at the corporate welfare. Let's look at the handouts. Let's look at the incredible um, wealth that's concentrated in yeah. the hands of the few and then people who who haven't worked or earned it, who just inherited that yeah. wealth. Why don't we have the same kind of scrutiny of them because that's really where the money is being wasted. It's it's no, it's not in the it's not in the, <laughs> the the on the welfare system. It's in the larger economic system. I mean, the economic crisis that happened in two thousand and eight was an incredible mm. example of what happens when people at the top of the system are just given mm. this incredible license to indulge with the marketing, the financial speculation, and the casino mm. mentality, and that's been very devastating to the economy. It's also- so. It has, and it's also, but it's also, uh, um, as I say, that the narrative and the, the media narrative behind it as well has been phenomenally successful. And for instance, I'll, I'll give you one example mm-hmm. of how this mm-hmm. how this works in Britain and why it's why it's um, managed to sort of percolate through into public opinion. If you ask the British public what the welfare budget is spent on, they they will automatically say that the majority of it is spent on unemployment benefit and a lot of that is being defrauded um, when more than 50% of the welfare budget in Britain goes on pensions and pensions related benefits. Now, one of the things that the government did when they introduced austerity was to ring fence pensions. They actually increased state pension payments. So that meant that less than 50% of the overall budget had to take 100% of the cuts. Mm. And guess where those cuts were divided between? Benefits and local services. So people who were disabled were disproportionately affected. But the British public don't realize that. They think that fraud is huge. If you ask them, on average, they'll say like 40% of benefits are, are claimed fraudulently. It's less than 0.7%. I mean, by any sort of, whatever way you look at that statistically, it's it's proportionally insignificant to um, the money that's out there actually doing good for people, throwing them a lifeline. The other thing is that, you know, the language has changed so dramatically from things like saying um, someone has fallen on hard times. Um, that would have been accepted before. That, you know what? life throws some stuff at you and you do fall on hard times. And when you do, the sign of a good social safety net is that it protects you when that happens. And the social safety net has literally been dismantled and has been dismantled in terms of the language to justify it. It's, so, it's incredible. And so instead of, of doing what some of those psychologists and professionals are doing when they see people coming in in financial distress and say, look, let's talk about austerity because we're looking at the impacts on mental health of economic policies. Instead of looking at it in that way, what happens is that people go to these internalized discussions Mm. about, well, I'm not trying hard enough. There's something wrong with me. There's something that is um, not in line with my uh, dedication or my motivation Mm. or my incentive or my intention. And it goes to this very strong ideology of individualism mm. that we yeah. look to individual blaming and individual solutions mm. instead of saying that we're all in this together and the entire society has mm. been thrown into a situation of yeah, economic it's, pressurization. It's like it's like policy is driven by undermining social solidarity and empathy. So rather than saying, you know, there are tough times none of which were actually caused by you, the average citizen. Remember, none of this was caused by you. But there are difficulties here. Let's find ways to pull together. Let's find ways that we can solve this. Instead, what happens 
is everyone who's already well off is told that they're well off because, you know, they must be special people. And everyone who's struggling or who's lost their job is told the opposite, is told, you know, well, pull your socks off. You're just not good enough. And that creates an incredible culture of fear and distrust. It breaks communities down. It breaks families down. And there's there's plenty of evidence out there that shows that that's the consequence. Of course, the other thing is that poorer people don't vote. You know, they don't. So, you know, if you're cutting the things that matter to them and they don't mm -hmm. vote, mm -hmm. um, then the, you know, the, the democratic exercise that they could be involved in to say, no, we don't accept this doesn't happen. And you have, and one of the things in Britain, I mean, for Americans who might not follow British politics, one of the things in the past 15 years that happened in Britain was there was already the beginnings of a vilification of people who were in receipt of social security benefits. The, the language had already, under the previous Labour government, begun to stigmatise people who were in receipt of benefits. And all that happened when the next government came in and needed to justify austerity was for them to ratchet that up. Now, of course, the problem was that the previous government, who were then now in opposition, um, weren't standing up and saying this is wrong. You know, there were individual members of those parties saying this is wrong. It was really only in in Scotland that you had a very strong party on an anti-austerity agenda. And when they ran for election on it, they went from like one MP to 50. One of the things that we see in the U.S., and I, I think this kind of is behind why a lot of people don't vote, is that the electoral system has been so captured by money I mean, I think mm. that there was a recent statistic that now there's 400 families in the United States that have been put in more than 90% of all of mm. the campaign donations. And so yeah. it's very clear that it's, it's a race of, of financing. It's a race of fundraising. Well, this, this is one of the things that Robert Reich at Berkeley talks about. And he talks about the system being rigged. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the, the, I mean, you might ask, well, why is this relevant to mental health? Why, you know, um, all of this is relevant to mental health and mental well-being mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you take away from people the things that give them hope, the things that allow them to think that their lives will get better and that their children's lives will get better, then what else is there? You know, it, this, is, this is pretty fundamental stuff. This is telling people that they are not full citizens. And, you know, this isn't an abstract thing. This isn't something to be dismissed as, as theory. This really affects how people think and feel. And... In every interview I did, that this came across really poignantly to me, that people really felt that they were being told that they were less than or they were other. Um, and that comes through in countless pieces of research that I've come across, internationally that comes across. And the extraordinary power of internalizing that that basically if you mm. can't if you can't find a job if you're mm. if you're renting and you don't have you're not a, owning a house the way that your parents generation maybe yeah. did if you're seeing that you don't have any savings then yeah. the message that you give yourself is oh i have to work harder i have to try more it must be something with my own uh, self-discipline or my own effort and we're so isolated and so individual individualized yeah and we're so separated there's zero discussion about how that connection mm -hmm. between our own individual experience yeah. and the collective social experience and of course one of the things that was so inspiring about occupy was mm -hmm. that people said actually let's talk about our own personal levels of mm -hmm. debt let's talk about our own mm -hmm. economic impact and let's talk about it collectively and yeah. not just blame ourselves for not trying hard enough. Because for every example that we have of one person that we seem mm. to know who's trying really hard and seems to be mm. making it mm. and climbing the ladder, there's hundreds more who are just shut out by the economic situation that we're in, not by any well, it, fault of their own, not by yeah, any I fault mean, of their own. It's in, it's interesting, and I'll I'll just sort of talk briefly ab about one woman's story, if that's okay, Will, who... Um, mm -hmm. After uh, the hardback of my book came out, she got in touch with me and and wanted to tell me what had happened to her because she said that she just couldn't believe what was happening to her and to people like her. This was a young woman in her mid-twenties, um, severely disabled her, her whole life, um, had gone to Cambridge University, got a fantastic degree, was now an academic researcher, when I was speaking to her, now her disability was so severe 
that she needed um, a care package. So she needed someone to help her get up in the morning, help her um, go to bed, you know, make sure that she was comfortable, those sorts of things. She was, I mean, she was academically accomplished. She had a full-time job and she was researching and she did all kinds of other sort of community-based things. Now, when the cuts started coming in and she moved to a different um, area for her job, she was told by her new local government that they no longer had a budget to support people like her mm. in the way that she was used to being supported. Mm. So they put her through a whole load of assessments, gave her very little say in what was happening, told her that she could have help for four hours a day. Now, for months and months and months, she appealed and appealed. And it was only when she threatened court action that she finally got the care package that she was entitled to. But I just I just want to read out a bit of what she told me, because yeah. I think I think it really tells you how people, this is a highly accomplished person, despite everything that life had already thrown at her. She says, in the last few years, I've been screamed at in the street for being a benefits and audience insert whatever swear word you want to at this point because she has been called everything. But never have I felt as subhuman and powerless as the council made me feel. I never felt less than as a child, but I do as a young adult. There were many occasions when I wanted to stop existing and didn't know how I would get through the day. There have been just two emotions in the last months, fear and rage. I joke that the Tories, that's the Conservative Party who are in government, should just round up all of us disabled people and have a shot. It will be quicker and cheaper than what they're doing and it would put us all out of our misery. It's a dark joke, but sometimes it doesn't feel like that. I wonder when we will fight for equality for disabled people. Now that a young woman of her caliber mm -hmm. is speaking like that, to me, is, is pretty shocking. And what many in your audience probably won't know is that only recently it was confirmed that the United Nations is going to be investigating Britain for infringing on disabled people's human rights. And that includes people with mental health difficulties. And that's, I mean, that's an extraordinary thing to happen. In part because of the austerity measures that have been happening? Is that the, what's prompting the Di investigation? Directly because of them and directly because of these welfare reforms that are related to it that we've talked about that have put people through these horrible, horrible tests. Because it's very clear whenever there's any kind of economic downturn or any kind of economic uh, crisis or collapse or austerity, it's, it's always the most vulnerable that get affected. And it's always oh, yeah. the, the people who are disabled who are the most affected. You know, it, one of the most astonishing things to me was um, while all of this was happening, while people like this young woman were having to deal with this, the British government reduced the highest rate of tax for the highest earners. Now, again, something I know will resonate with people in the U.S. Because, right. because whatever the economic situation we're always told that we need to cut taxes for the rich. I mean, why? It's just, you know, when, when you know, and we learned this week in the U.S., didn't we, that um, wages um, have declined more rapidly than was previously thought for people on lower earnings. This all ties in. This absolutely all ties in. And we, you know, we, we live in rich countries and with lots of rich people. And yet we have stories like this. That's right. Every, every day I hear stories like this. We absolutely can afford to support people and to create a mm. good, solid safety net. It just takes the political will. It takes the um, the commitment socially, mm. um, politically to make it happen. But there are um, arguments out there that will say, well, yes, austerity is is certainly hard and bad. But, you know, there's really no alternative. It's just how economies go. Economies are kind of like the weather. Sometimes you have bad weather. Sometimes you have good weather. Sometimes you the bad weather causes difficulty with the crops. Everybody just has to deal with austerity. What would you say to a response like that? And what do you think are some of the alternatives to an austerity and neoliberalist approach to um, economics? Well, for a start, for whoever the devil's advocate would be putting that argument, the only word to say is it's nonsense. Um, there are alternatives to austerity. It's not inevitable. And we know that because not every country who was affected by the uh, global do downturn in 2008, 2009 actually reacted that way. 
you know, it, it, it's mm-hmm. talked about as if it was the only thing we could do. There, there was right. nothing else that we could do. Now, again, that's a very effective political narrative, and it, it really has resonated with people. So but you you mentioned uh, you mentioned that only happened for some people. It hasn't happened for everybody. Even in the societies where it's taken place, it hasn't ha- happened for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said you mentioned that Obama actually was able to get a stimulus package in, yeah. and that did protect the United States from some of the worst ep- aspects of the austerity. But what are some? Are there other countries in Europe that didn't go the austerity route? And what what both was the impact socially, and also how did mm. they? How do they respond to the economic crisis? Well, this is where David Stuckler and Sanjay Bruce's research is very, very enlightening because they, they did some data mining over 100 years across Europe and the U.S., looking at, looking at patterns before and after the Great Recession took place. And one of the interesting things that came out is that those countries that didn't introduce austerity, those countries that either kept their social protection and healthcare system spending as it was or increased it, did not have the human fallout that the countries that introduced austerity had. But did their economies collapse? No, they're part of the same global economic system as all the other countries are. So somewhere like Sweden actually increased some of its spending. It saw a dip in suicides. Iceland, which arguably was one of the biggest basket cases in the run-up to the financial crisis because it was so overstretched and so indebted by the time the um, crisis had swayed, did the opposite of what Britain did. It kept its health service intact. It kept its social protections intact. Its economy's doing okay by all accounts. Um, whereas in Britain, um, there are a lot of you know very, very important, very significant um, economic analysis of this, looking at how the, there was a fiscal, what's called a fiscal drag created. So the economy was like stuttering, barely keeping going. Um, now, one of the very effective things about the narrative that was wrapped up around austerity was that if things were doing better, then the government said, this is because of the austerity cuts. But when there was a threat of another recession, rather than saying, oh, the austerity cuts have, have hindered growth, they said, oh, well, then we need to cut some more. So the narrative works either way for them. And so um, kind of bringing this to a, all the way full circle, the real mm. motivation is, is is it just a political motivation that you have the rich saying, look, let's just get more rich. And so they use their political power, their influence over government policy to make that happen. Is that essentially what's going on here? Is there a broad... Well, it, is, is, it is and it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, and again, much of this is are questions for economists um, uh, who know much more about this than I do. But but what I have learned um, in the five or six years that I have been looking at this is that the kind of austerity that was introduced um, across Europe and to some degree in the United States, um, there's always a choice. And one of the choices that could have been made was to keep stimulus going a bit longer until the economy felt a bit stronger. Because guess what? When an economy is stronger, it increases tax receipts. Tax receipts go into the government coffers and mm-hmm. they do all the things that they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, you could, the governments could have delayed. They could have delayed. Their economies weren't going to collapse if they delayed some of the cuts that they wanted to introduce. That's one thing. Second thing is they could have spread, the, they really could have spread the load. So in Britain, one of the mantras that was used time and time and again was, we're all in this together, we're all in this together. Blatantly obvious, we're not all in this together. The poorest and the most vulnerable took the burden. They, they took the hit. That didn't have to happen. So even if you did think austerity was the way to go, you didn't have to do it the way it was done. Mary O'Hara, we are just about out of time on Madness Radio. I just want to encourage people to check out your book, Austerity Bites on, um, it's a University of Chicago just published in paperback in the United States. People can go to your website, austeritybitesuk.com. Are you hopeful? Do you feel like the word is getting out that maybe we need to start connecting some of these issues and think beyond austerity politics? I mean, what's been the reception to your book and what sort of do you see the outlook for the future for us? I think not to be hopeful is so self-defeating. You know, it's really... Um, it's very self-defeating. There had, the more evidence that emerges, the more research that is done, the more economists have been speaking out, the more mental health professionals have been speaking out, the more people become aware of what the true impact has been. That 
That being said, this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to fight against. And many people in Britain and elsewhere will say that one of the reasons for that is because the, the narrative justifying austerity has been so successful and the media on the whole has been supportive of it. And that really does affect the ability for people to see through the, you know, the, the obfuscation and in many cases sort of misinformation around this. So it's difficult. I really do hope that something changes soon. That doesn't seem to be on the cards in Britain right now, I have to say. Uh, but I really do hope something changes soon. Mary O'Hara, thank you so much for joining us on Madness Radio. Well, thank you. Well, I'm really pleased to have been able to, to talk to you. Um, you've been listening to an interview with Mary O'Hara. She's a social affairs journalist and author. She's written on uh, mental health issues for more than a decade for The Guardian news newspaper. Her new book is Austerity Bites. It's available through Chicago University Press out in paperback in the United States. Um, and the website is austeritybitesuk.com. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.